Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Father, we do praise you and thank you that you do love us. The evidence that you love us is that you've come into the world in the person of your son while we were still sinners and you laid down your life for us. Father, we don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve you. But Father, we praise you and thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to step onto that cross to lay down his life for us that we might live. And so, Father, we pray tonight as we think upon your word. Father, may your spirit help us through your word to see Jesus. We pray that spirit would help us tonight to, through your word, hear Jesus. And we pray, Father, that your spirit tonight would help us to love Jesus. So, gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that your word brings life. We pray that you would help us to see the life that your word holds out to us tonight really is the life that we want, the life that we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Compassion, that's what we're thinking about tonight. We're in a series called We Need to Talk, and we're thinking tonight about compassion. We're thinking tonight about compassion. We all know, right, that compassion makes people do the most extraordinary things. Uh, Compassion led Mother Teresa to spend 50 years of her life serving the poor and disadvantaged in the slums of Calcutta. We know that compassion leads firemen to to rush in and save the lives of men and women and children in the burning embers of a, 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 a house or an apartment block. We know that compassion drives a soldier back onto the battlefield while bullets and things are flying around to save an injured comrade. We know that compassion leads people to give up their lives to care for the sick and the needy. We know that compassion is that thing that kind of gets us to put our hand in our wallet or into our purse to support those who are in need. I read during the week, actually, um, or I heard on the radio, actually, I listen to old people's radio, 891. Apologies to other people who are in the room who listen to that, who happen to be a bit older than me. Um, 891 ABC Radio. There was a, there's a guy who lives down on Fullerton Road um, near uh, the Fruville Shopping Centre who's been in this house. He's, the house has been in his family since like the late 1800s. He claims, this guy, I think his name's Royce, I think, claims that um, a member of his family has always been in that house every day since the time they took ownership of this house. The property is derelict. Uh, the government basically said, we want that property out of our sight. It's terrible. Um, people wanted to kind of confiscate it, take the land off him. But a guy stepped in, I forget his name, he's a Christian man, and said no, and raised enough money to build on the back of the block a suitable dwelling so that he could live there. Um, compassion for this man, Royce, who'd been there forever, who was about to be kicked off. Compassion led this other Christian man to do this extraordinary Thing. Compassion is one of the most powerful of all human emotions. And what we're going to see tonight as we think about Matthew chapter 9, opening into Matthew chapter 10, we're going to see tonight is that when a disciple of Jesus Christ shares the compassion of Jesus and the compassion that Jesus has for a lost world, it has no less a dramatic effect. Um, I love reading stories of missionaries, Christian missionaries, who've done extraordinary things in the name of Jesus around the world. And there's lots of things to love about these two people, um, Adoniram Judson and his wife, Anne. Um, These two, particularly Adoniram on the left, personified that idea of just 
compassion, getting the compassion of Jesus and thrusting him out into a lost world. He was just 24 years old when he set out um, to Burma with his wife. They'd only been married for 17 months at that point. Uh, They served the Lord in Burma. His life, their life became a catalogue of pain, trauma and suffering. They had three children, Anne and Adoniram. We don't know the name of the first one, but the first child died on the boat when they were crossing to Burma. Their second, a little boy named Roger, lived only till 17 months of age. Their third, Maria, lived only to be two. And Judson's wife died six months earlier. His second wife also died, and the four children they had to that marriage also died. The trials are incredible. But remarkably, he remained in Burma throughout all of that until he was 61, contending for the gospel, living out his call to follow Jesus and make disciples in Jesus' name. Among the numerous striking things about Judson's story is the extent to which he knew exactly what he was going into. We've got a letter that he wrote to Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage before he left. And let me read it. It's on the screen. He's writing to Anne's father to ask for her hand in marriage. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamation of praise which shall redound her Saviour from, he- from, he- from heathen saved, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Wow. Who are the dads in the room tonight? Who's got a daughter? Yeah? Imagine getting a letter like that from your prospective son-in-law. Unbelievable. If you're anything like me, I've got a daughter. I want my daughter to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus all her days. I'd also like you to do that in a nice, safe, comfortable environment, maybe just around the corner from where I live. That would be really good um, down the track. Remarkably, right, Anne's father said, she's of age, she can decide herself. Even more remarkable, Anne said, yep, let's do it. Unbelievable. And off they went. Here's my question. What sort of single-minded passion, why is that sort of single-minded compassion? That self-forgetfulness about this world, that zeal for the glory of God, the salvation of lost souls here and abroad, why is that so lacking in our generation? What is it that produces men and women like that? What sort of training scheme or strategy that is there that we need to devise if we want to raise up a generation of men and women who are like that? People who'll spend their lives making disciples. People who'll spend their lives at whatever cost, whatever sacrifice, at home, at work, abroad. The surprising answer, and it's from the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and 10 that we had read before, 
Is it disciples like that are produced when God's people are so struck by the authority and the beauty and the power and compassion of Jesus that they devote themselves to prayer and to the proclamation of the good news? Proclamation. Now, the gospel writers, right, they often highlight the compassion of Jesus as one of their favourite things. It's a favourite theme. Here in our passage, Jesus sees vast crowds of people in front of him, and in verse 36, when he sees the crowd, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I've just got a few points to share tonight. One of the first things I'm going to do as an elder here at City Light, if we often have sermons about 40 minutes, I'm upping it to 60, and we're starting tonight. No, no, I'm just joking. Three points. The first point is this. The heart of Christ is for people. That's the first point. The heart of Christ is for people. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. To this point, if you've Know Matthew's Gospel. If you've, been, if you've ever read Matthew's Gospel, we're shown evidences of the authority and power of Jesus. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 35, we see it again. Matthew drops in these like summary verses all the way through his Gospel to sort of help us kind of catch up on what Jesus has been doing. You get one in chapter 4, verse 23. And then 9, 35, we read this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing Every disease and sickness. Just press pause there for a second. This is not in my notes. I know I'm not meant to do this. But um, when, when we hear that, every disease and sickness, it's, there was a moment in Galilee, you know, in, in, real, in real world, real time, back in the first century, where there was no disease, no sickness. You know, like the doctors were out of business. The pharmacists closed down. There was nothing for them to do. There was a glimpse of the future kingdom that we're going to enjoy in Jesus right on our real world. Unbelievable. We're reminded of the authority and power of Jesus preaching and his healing ministry. But then in verse 36, it shifts to the compassion of Christ. The word that's used there for compassion is very graphic. It's like he was moved right into his inner being, his, his bowels. Jesus was moved by the plight of those who stood before him. It's how the Good Samaritan felt when he came across the injured guy on the side of the road. It's the compassion that the father felt when the prodigal son was coming down on the horizon, returning home. It speaks of deep, deep commitment and love. Jesus knew that the crowds before him would soon scream for his execution. But on this particular day, he looks out at them and he's moved with compassion. Not one of condemnation first and foremost, although there's a legitimacy to that, but he's moved with compassion. Now, I don't know, I don't know what emotions fill you when you see a crowd of people. Whenever I walk into a Westfield shopping centre and I see the crowds, I'm not moved with compassion. I'm moved to go running back to my car. You can ask Adele about that. The other night, I went, I'm a Richmond football fan. Don't hold that against me. We are the best team. But um, I went to the Adelaide Oval to watch... Uh, Richmond play Port Power. I was like one of three other people supporting Richmond there at the ground. It was a sea of teal. Oh, it's a terrible colour. Anyway, I'm, I'm looking at this crowd. I was not filled with compassion for any of them. Not one of them. As we overcame them, I, I felt a little bit of pity for them. 
Not an ounce of compassion. My reaction is not always compassion. And yet when Jesus looked out at that generation, I guess like many today who are wandering around the city and neighbourhoods, they were living for pleasures and plaudits and privileges and paychecks and pilsners, he didn't despise them, he pitied them. His heart went out to them, verse 36, because they were harassed and helpless, distressed, downcast. They were oppressed. Why? Because they were following false religion, by the lies of false religion. Because a life without God is that sad. It's tragic. So many people we know and love go through life thinking, if only I had a partner or I had a better partner, if I could make the partner I've got now a little bit better, that would be good. Or if only I had a job or, or a different job or if I could just make the job I've got a little bit better, that would make me fulfilled. Or they think that the pleasures of sin are so much worth more than the riches in Christ or that true freedom is found outside of Jesus rather than in Jesus. And when Jesus looked out on the crowd that day, when he looks at people from the throne of grace this day, you can be sure that he's not fooled by the, the smiles on the people's faces who think they're in control and have it all together. He knows that even if they gain the whole world, they'll forfeit their soul. And so he is filled with compassion for them. We live in Prospect, just off Prospect Road. One of the amazing things, I guess, as we think about God's providence in all of this coming together of me being lead elder and overseeing this flock, you here at North Adelaide, is that we, were, we haven't lived in Prospect all our lives. We moved in there. We bought a house late 2017. Uh, we moved in middle of last year. Um, and it was sort of around that time when Don got on the phone and said, hey, you want to come and hang out with us at City Light? And, uh, you know, lots of stuff. And, and we... We never expected to, to live in the inner north. We never expected to be here, and that's the providence of God. And, and yet I live around this area, hanging out with beautiful people like that. Um, and uh, I walk down Prospect Road, right, and I, it's becoming a pretty popular village. And the people I walk past like on Prospect Road, they look like they're going places. And a lot of people I walk past look like they've already arrived where they're meant to be going. But in reality, they're no more than sheep without a shepherd. The shepherd's job, of course, right, was to, is to protect the sheep from you know, wolves and danger. It's to lead the sheep to, to green pastures where they can feed and flourish. And so the, the shepherd is an appropriate image to apply to the leadership of God's people all the way through the Old Testament. You might recall, if you're a Bible person, Numbers 27, Moses is about to die. He's praying, and he prays that God would appoint another leader over them so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath and all living things, breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps more famously, Ezekiel 34, God's judgment over against the false shepherds of Israel. God himself promises to come and be their shepherd. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Shepherds should not, should not shepherds feed the flock. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the choice animals, but you do not feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, banished the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you've ruled over them. He goes on. They were scattered because they had no shepherd and became food for every wild animal. 
My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the entire face of the earth with no one looking or searching for them. And yet, listen to this. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a cloudy, dark day. I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from foreign countries. I will bring them to their own land. Notice the pronoun, I. God says, I will do it. And now the gospel, Matthew, Jesus, the good shepherd, sees the crowd and he is filled with compassion for them. In one sense, this passage is a striking rebuke against the the Pharisees. They were the ones who were meant to, to be shepherding the people, but they're failing miserably. And Jesus' heart goes out to the people. He can see that they need his loving protection and his kind rule so desperately. There's this famous painting, not that one, next one, by Holman, Holman Hunt, uh, called The Hiling. Um, you can see it features a shepherd and he's hanging out with his maid in the, in the field. Um, and in the background are the sheep, kind of, they don't look like they're going terribly crazy, but they kind of are. They're all over the place. The sheep are, some of the sheep also, if you look in parts of it, they're jumping into the creek, um, climbing fences. They're a, they're a bit of a rabble. This was Hunt's self-conscious betrayal of the church of his day. A church busy looking after its own interests whilst tens of thousands are kind of lost. And you'll know this, is, this can be true of many a church. Many denominations, even, even some DGs can end up like this, where we're just consumed by our own agenda and in the background tens of thousands of people are getting lost, desperately in need. And I take it that if the compassion of Jesus leads him to command us to pray, then if we share that compassion of Jesus and submit to his authority, then we ourselves will be moved to pray. There's a story of the great evangelist from the United States of America, D.L. Moody. There's a snap of him. He, a great Christian evangelist, he was visiting the UK on one particular occasion. He was in a hotel and he was visited by some fairly snobby Church of England clergy. Um, if you are here tonight and you're one of them, welcome. It's good to have you here. No, no. Um, and uh, anyway, this, he was visited by these clergy and uh, they said to him, Mr. Moody, uh, you've come to London. You have no education, virtually. You speak horrible English. That, that means American. Um, your sermons are very simple and thousands of people are converted. We want to know how you do it, Mr. Moody. The report says that Moody kind of said, well, guys, come over here. And they walked over to the window and he pulled back the curtains and he asked them, tell me what you see. One of them noticed the park um, and some children playing in it. Another one noticed the same thing and then also noticed an elderly couple walking hand in hand through the park. The third guy recognised that they'd all missed the point and asked, Mr Moody, what do you see? And in his biography, it says this. As Mr. Moody stood there, gazing out of the window, tears began to roll down his cheeks and into his grey beard. One asked, Mr. Moody, what are you looking at? What do you see? When I look out the window, he said, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell 
if they do not find the Saviour. Living in Adelaide, yeah, it's, it's easy to forget that tomorrow morning, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be commuting all over this city, into the CBD, among the suburbs, people in our own neighbourhoods, people at our kids' school, you know, that person, the barista at the cafe who makes your double shot decaf soy latte with no froth, you know that guy? <laughs> Not to mention, right, that all the disadvantaged and dispossessed and marginalised and poor people in our city, all who desperately, desperately, desperately need Jesus. You see, isn't it wonderful, though, that we have a God who, with all his authority, all his power, all his majesty is not callous to the deepest need of the world around us, but is greatly moved by it. So much so, so moved is he by the plight of us people who are out of relationship with him that he came into the world in the person of his son. You know, when, when God the Father says to Jesus the Son, I have, a, I have a job for you to do. I need you to go into the world and lay down your life for the world. Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 I'm the son. Like, I'm in heaven, I'm not me. Jesus just went, yep, that's what I do. And so he comes into the world, the perfect son of God, sinless saviour, who goes to the old wooden rugged cross, lays down his life for sinners like you and me. Unworthy, undeserving but desperately in need of his grace and love and mercy. I'm so moved by it that he does two things about it. Well, three things. One is he comes into the world himself, but then he calls us to do two things. One is this. Second of my third point, three or three points. The prayer of disciples is for workers. In the light of what Jesus has seen, you know, crowds of people like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. Verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. The metaphor here changes from flocks and sheep to fields. As Jesus speaks of the harvest, he's speaking of a, a crop of people that God will bring to Jesus as they hear about what he's done for them. And the great news from the lips of Jesus is that the harvest of future followers of Jesus is plentiful. It is abundant. It's so easy to think, isn't it, that the golden days of the church in the West are past, you know, like good old days, you know, Billy Graham, all that sort of stuff, like, you know, we're, you know. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ has his people he is building his church right at this very moment in time. Jesus is gathering people to himself from every people group, language, tongue, and ethnicity. He will ensure that on the last day when he returns, which is the next great event in world history, when he returns, countless millions of people will be gathered around the throne worshipping the Son. So just look at verse 37 and notice where the problem lies. Have you heard people say, the big problem in our generation is apathy. No one cares about spirituality or you know, even hostility towards Jesus. For sure, there are frustrations. But here Jesus locates the problem not in the world. He locates it in the workforce. 
There just aren't enough laborers out in the field. That's true internationally. Um, there's a graphic up here from the Joshua Project. Um, the red sort of sections largely are the, the unreached people, the least reached people in our world. Um, the figures show that about 40% of the world's population don't even have access to a church that would even like to tell them about the good news of Jesus. That's only like three billion people. Oh, there are plenty of other places around the world, right, where the church is actually growing quite rapidly and numerically, but on their own admission, they lack real depth. There's a desperate need for training of leaders, church leaders. Um, I read the other day that um, Scotland, Scotland, um, sorry, I should never try it. I've heard the other day that Scotland is, is on the verge of becoming an unreached people group because the, the number of Christians living in that place is so thin, the number of churches proclaiming the good news are so few that they're becoming almost unreached, like Japan almost. Staggering. What's true internationally is probably pretty true nationally. Church scene in Australia Many towns and centres in Australia that are completely devoid of any gospel witness whatsoever. Um, some organisations, like Acts 29, keen to plant churches, right? We are keen to plant churches. One of the things that I have in my mind, in a vision, right, is, is that we will be a church that plants again and again and again and again. I'm expecting, like, Main North Road, right, to be sort of city light road, you know, where we... God just plants churches all the way down, right out to, you know, Gawler and beyond. That would be great, wouldn't it? But I, I find at least two things hold us back. You won't be surprised that one is money. That holds us back. But my impression is that the bigger restraint is just the lack of workers. We simply haven't got the men to go and lead those churches and simply haven't got the, the members of congregations to willing to sacrifice and go and serve in those places. The national harvest needs more workers. The need is international. The need is national and very much local. Here in North Adelaide, I see all the university students. I see the tourists. I see the golfers down on the golf course. You go into Prospect, all the young families. You go into Kilburn, Blair Athol, the migrants, Afghani, Urga, Persian, Sudanese. I often wonder, who on earth is going to tell them about Jesus? The harvest is plentiful, but where are the workers? You know, part of the answer, right, is that every Christian is a worker. If you're here tonight, by God's grace, you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in him, you are a worker. Every Christian is a gospel worker, an informal missionary appointed and equipped by God to tell the world about Christ. Listen to one commentator expressing that. He says there are Christian workers... They are already in every church. All they need is to have a fire lit under them to thrust them out of their comforts into the world of adventure and need, into the breathtaking work of harvesting the field of God. Isn't that great? But can I just be really clear tonight? I know it's, you know, Jacko's commissioning, Jacko's potluck celebration. The commentator here is not talking about the lead pastor of City Light Church, North Adelaide. You know, it's Jacko's job to do the mission. I know most of you don't think like that, which is really refreshing and beautiful. 
but I, one of the big problems I think I've identified in, in churches in our city is that many local church members and maybe even the leaders themselves kind of think their sole job of the pastor is to do the work, all the work of mission and ministry. Let that not be the case. As I step into this role tonight, and Lord willing, for a while, there are four things that will shape who I am and what I hope to do as a leader here at City Light North Adelaide. Four things. One is to preach, to preach the gospel. Not to preach my own version, but to preach the version that we see coming out of the scriptures, the good news, to preach the good news, week in, week out. Second thing is to pray. Um, Someone wrote that a, a pastor is known by kind of basically how much time he spends on his knees. I want to be a man who prays. I'm going to preach. I'm going to pray. Third thing, I'm going to love. I feel a deep love for you guys as the pastor here at North Adelaide. I don't have just a love for you. I have a love for the lost around this area. And and as we preach and as we pray, I want to love and connect with us all together in that task of loving the people. But I want to love you. And the fourth thing is stay. Preach, pray, love, stay. It may be that I don't stay for very long because you know, the need for a church plant happens really fast and we've got to get out and someone else has to take over. But my plan is to stay, to stay, to be able to do those things, the preaching, the praying and the loving. But we're all in this together. We're all workers. I remember in an interview for a ministry job some years ago, I was asked, Simon, how are you going to reach this area? A far better question is how are you going to help us reach this area? So the commentator continues, a too clerical view of mission will inhibit the privileges of the whole people of God. I love how he's so positive about the task, inhibiting the privileges of the people. I don't want to keep you away from the breathtaking work of harvesting the field of God. I want us all, everyone, to see that we are already workers for Christ. Every Christian is appointed to be a worker in God's harvest field. The problem is, right, I think that some of us can become weary. And that's understandable because Christian ministry is really hard. Perhaps you're here tonight and you've grown discouraged in your ministry. That's a real weapon of the evil one, is to just discourage you and to keep you in that place. But discouragement, let's pray about that. Let's pray to overcome discouragement. Some of us perhaps haven't yet gotten started yet in this work of mission. Um, Andrew Tran was just on the computer, right? Who I affectionately call our pastor, who's been here for, you know, working hard for us. And um, I'm glad he kind of wasn't there because he's quite an intimidating man. He's small but intimidating. And uh, he shared, um, he shared, he's reading, he's in Singapore at the moment, and he shared a book that he's reading, Trellis and the Vine. Um, And he shared this really cool quote. I want to share it with you. Um, The Christian without a missionary heart is an anomaly. The missionary heart will be seen in all kinds of ways, in prayers for the lost, in making sure that our behaviour offends no one, in gospel conversations with friends at dinner parties, and in making every effort to save some. We are slaves without rights, even though we are free. Hearts for mission. Missionary heart will be seen in all kinds of ways. 
ordinary things, coffees with friends, dinner parties, hanging out, drives. And so Jesus says, that is why, disciples, we need to pray. It's God who sends us out, literally thrusts us out. You could say even like casts out in the context, workers into his harvest field. And because it's God's job to cast them out, it's our job to pray. To be honest, I'm struck that Jesus doesn't say at this point, the need is great, therefore go and make disciples. He will say that if you read through the rest of Matthew's Gospel to chapter 28. But here he says the need is great, so pray. Where there is prayer, there will always be mission. Always. But where prayer is lacking, real mission will always be weak. Where there is prayer, there will always be mission. Where prayer is lacking, real mission will always be weak. We simply cannot be blind to the desperate need of those around and therefore we give ourselves as Christians to prayer. Earnest prayer. Not half-hearted requests, but fervent pleading. You know, I've got three small children. I've been a single dad because Adele's been overseas for the last couple of weeks and I've been at the supermarket with him and Biazzi the other day, right, was, we were in the chocolate aisle and there was a bar. And man, he was fervently pleading for that bar. You know, like it started with, Dad, can I have a Mars bar? I'm like, no, son, you can't. Dad, can I have a Mars bar? People started moving away, you know. (laughs) I won't go right to the end, but, you know, fervent pleading. I want that bar. I want, Lord, you to use us to see people saved. There are dead people out there who need Jesus. Fervent prayer that leads to strong mission. I wonder, will we give ourselves to prayer? Here's a thought, two minutes a day. Brothers and sisters at City Light Church, two minutes a day. Everyone else, two minutes a day. Could you give that? Asking God to send out more workers into the harvest field. If all God's people across this church, across this city, spend just two minutes a day praying, I think the results will be staggering. Unbelievable. And a wonderful thing tonight. Thank you for coming, friends from other churches, to support me and Adele and us as we go into this. There's many churches represented here. Churches, organisations that are making Jesus known. If we all gave ourselves to two minutes a day, it would be unreal. And I find it really encouraging that when we pray like this, we are praying to the one Jesus calls the Lord of the harvest. This is the God who has his people in this city. This is the God who can do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. This is the God who has great power, who is majestic, who is beautiful, who is compassionate. And his love is so wide. So the prayer of the disciples is for workers. I'm fast running out of time tonight. But Jesus is for people. The disciples of Jesus pray for more workers into the harvest. And Jesus gives us the gift of authority for mission. I've got a lot to say here. I'm just going to go shrink it in. Um, When Jesus looks out at the lost world with gut-wrenching compassion... He says, I need my disciples to pray. And the second thing he does, let me read from chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
He then goes on in verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Just really quickly, Jesus, he calls for the disciples to pray. We then see this group of disciples head out to look out for and to save the lost sheep of Israel. He says he gives them the authority to heal every sickness and disease. It's like Jesus says, I'm the king, I have this power, I have this authority here. Go and use it to do what I've been doing. It's interesting as you go forward, it's not, you and I, this is, it was a unique job for the apostles to do that particular work that Jesus had been doing, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons. When you go to the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus doesn't say to you and I, sort of rank and file disciples, you know, go and heal every disease and sickness. He tells us to go and make disciples. We have a different role. There's a unique role for the apostles. But Jesus lists this group of 12 to show us here's the new people of God. Here's the people of God, not connected to God through genetic descent, but through relationship with the Saviour. And so Jesus here is sending out this new people to reach the lost of Israel. And then what that prefigures is that you and I, if you're in Jesus tonight, to reach the lost of this world. Compelled by the same gut-wrenching compassion that Christ had for the lost. Phase one, he asks his disciple to pray for more workers. Phase two, he's now established his church and sends them out on mission to continue his work in the world. That we will be men and women, convinced of the good news, compelled by the compassion of Christ, to share the love of the good news with men and women from all nations everywhere we be. Prayer and mission. And I suspect that means that what we see in this passage are two big marks of what it looks like for a church to share the heart of Jesus and his compassion for a lost word. First, will we be a praying church? Will we? And second, will we, will we be a mission-shaped church? Setting ourselves up in a way that screams to the world that our great, good, and gloriously gracious king rules and reigns and he loves them. I'm hoping that together the Lord will help us to do that. As we set into this new, not new, Don was helpful in this. It's not a new thing we're doing here at North Adelaide. The next thing we do as we continue the mission of making Jesus known. Uh, Would you pray with me as we ask God to help us to do that? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that You sent your Holy Spirit to us, your disciples. Uh, Lord, filling us with joy, uh, boldness and power to proclaim the gospel. Father, empower and renew us uh, with that same spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Empower us with that same spirit to to witness uh, to your compassionate and redeeming love that's so evident in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we do that, we pray that you would use us to draw people to yourself, to your Son. 
So, Father, please use us. Help us to be a people who pray. Father, help us to be a people who love one another deeply and love the world around us. Father, give us gospel eyes as we go out into this week. Father, to see where people are out with you and that their desperate need for Christ is real. And Father, help us to share the good news as we go about our lives this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.